Father, we come before you right now. We have some time to open your word. First, thank you so much, Lord, that you spoke, that you're still speaking, that after we sinned in the garden, you didn't close your mouth and leave us to die on our own. Lord, you, you kept talking and you made a way and you made a plan in order for us to be here these many centuries later. Uh, and your word is sacred. Your word is good. Your word is true. It is righteous. It divides up things that are holy and things that are wrong. Um, and it is a weighty thing, Lord, to, to bring that to people. You even say in your word that teachers have a higher accountability. So, Lord, be with me. I pray that you use my words. I pray that you fill me with your spirit. I pray that all of us, Lord, would just be opening this and that we would be receiving from you in the same manner, that you would be teaching me, that you would be teaching my friends here, that we would all of one accord just lift up the name of Jesus with the things that we learn and that our lives would just show that by the way that we live them. Um, Bless Alan, Lord, in his vacation. Give him some rest. I know the dude is always so busy. So I just pray that you would uh, be with us tonight, uh, that you'd be with any other meeting or gathering anywhere around the world that's, that's seeking to glorify you and to meet with you, Lord. Be blessed with this Friday night in October from your people. I pray in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 7. Go to Mark chapter 7. If you need a Bible, people on the right are waving them, and you can take one. I'm new here. Mark chapter 7. We'll be only looking at verses 24 through 30. I love this account. little backstory before we do this. Jesus uh, has broken onto the scene in each of the gospel accounts, and each person tells it from a different perspective. He is doing one thing. He's walking around, and he's preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that he's talking about the good news of his kingdom, the kingdom that he's bringing, the kingdom that he is showing forth by his actions, the kingdom that he is talking about, and, and what that kingdom is is a place where Christians worship Jesus forever. There will be an actual, literal setting up of that place on the earth one day, but it, not yet. And at this point in the Gospels, Jesus is walking around telling people how to get into that kingdom. And here's the main message he says. You have to repent. Repent and then draw near and you can have entrance into this kingdom. And all throughout Mark, what he's doing is he's giving a snapshot after snapshot of stuff Jesus does, of stuff Jesus says. Um, and interestingly enough, Mark is often referred to as the dull gospel written by a man who was, and I quote from a, a theologian, neither a historian nor an author, and he assembled his material in the simplest manner thinkable. The reason people say that is because you read a section, and then the next section, you're like, this has nothing to do with just where we came from. Like, are you literally just, like, cutting pieces up, and, like, you're giving me random parts of Jesus' day? Like, how am I supposed to be able to connect any of these things? But even though people say that about Mark, he actually displays really good writing technique in his style of writing. And I'm going over this for a specific reason. Because when we look at this one little section, we're going to have to grab from other sections to grab a bunch of different kinds of really good applications. So Mark does a lot of intention and design in the way that he writes. He uses something called a sandwich technique, which places 
what seems to be a useless story in between two other stories in order to get across one main point. So there's details in all three that give you the sandwich. He often uses irony in his accounts of Jesus' ministry, which I think is just great because Mark's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's like throwing stuff in there. You're like, that's funny. He uses irony, which is awesome. He sets up distinct patterns as he writes out his gospel, mainly the one of insiders and outsiders. So when you talk about insiders, what he means is his disciples, the people that are near him, the people that are considered his followers. Outsiders are considered people that are not Jewish, don't follow him, and basically seemingly are worthless to Israel, which is God's people at the time. So all of that is to say that you can't lose the main application by just thinking, this doesn't make sense. Like, all of a sudden he's talking about washing hands and stuff, and now he's telling some woman she's a dog, and then all of a sudden he's like into capitalists. Like, what on earth are we doing? Like, is this really like the Jesus that everybody's saying, this is the God that we serve? If you're a visitor tonight, it's about to get real. Because we're, we're going to look at something that you're like, I don't like that. It doesn't sound very nice. But you got to hang with us. It's super important. Tonight, the writing technique that's going to be very prominent is two. Contrast. There's a major contrast in our specific section. And he uses irony. And the reason that he uses irony in the place that we're looking at tonight is because he's portraying Jesus as somebody um, who, as one person who I was reading put it, challenges and confounds and sometimes breaks conventional stereotypes, whether they're religious, social, or political. So a lot of times when irony enters into the gospel, it's because Mark is making the point that, like, listen, this Jesus is here to break every single cultural norm that you think you know, and he's going to redefine all of it. And that definition that he makes throughout all of the things that we see in Mark, that's the way it is in his kingdom, which is the whole thing that he's preaching. So this is important. So the way that Jesus responds to various people and situations and their response to him is often not what you would anticipate when you read through the Gospels. You read some of these things and you're like, that is not what I thought like hippie Jesus would say. You know what I mean? Or like, I can't believe that person responded that way. Like, this is crazy. That is so often what happens. So verse 24 of Mark chapter 7, all that background to say we're going to be jumping around a little bit Hang with me by the end. Hopefully we can wrap this up into a super neat bow. Verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and he wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now you know what I'm talking about. You're like, are you for real? 28. She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So here's part of the contrast, right? It says, from there, verse 24, he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is coming from a situation where he had to combat the religious leaders on something called the tradition of the elders, 
you look at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 7, it says this to us. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And now when they saw that some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper, vessels, and couches. So the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So our contrast is, he defines what causes someone to be defiled, and what happens is it has nothing to do with what's going on in your stomach, but with what's coming out of your heart. That's verses 14 through 23 of chapter 7. So there's this issue where he's going around with his disciples, and they are eating bread, and apparently they didn't wash it the way that the tradition of the elders are into, which the tradition of the elders was things that the Pharisees added to the law in order to make sure that everybody kept the law. And so they made it ridiculous, and it was really impossible to keep all these things that they wanted you to do. And one of the things was you had these ridiculous washing ceremonies where you had to make sure that, like, your hands were clean before you ate, or you washed couches, cups, pitchers, because they considered it defiled or unclean. And then what Jesus says to us in verses 14 through 23 of chapter 7 is he basically rolls up and he combats that thing. He tells a parable, and then what happens is, uh, he gets into a house in verse 17 away from the crowd and his disciples are asking about the parable and he says this in verse 18. Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated thus purifying all foods. So he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So when he lands in Tyre and Sidon, which has been said represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, and, and symbolically that a Jew could encounter, he's totally blowing their tradition out of the water. He's like, oh, I'll go to a place that's like totally unclean by your standards. I'll talk to a woman who by your standards, which we'll see, is just like the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst. Why? Because it's not about like what's coming inside of you or it's not about where you came from, where you grew up. It's not about what your ethnicity is. He's like, it's about what's coming out of you. That's what I'm counting on. That's what I'm looking at. So what Jesus does when he goes to Tyre and Sidon after this um, account where he's going back and forth with these religious leaders about their, you know, ceremonies, is he expands the scope of his ministry, like, way beyond anything conceivable of what the Jewish Messiah would do. The point is, the Messiah was supposed to come and take care of all the Gentiles, which it, it, Jewish writing said that he would, like, overthrow them so that Jews could finally have a really cool place to live without anybody that was horrible. And instead, Jesus shows up, he goes to a Gentile region, and he starts expanding where his kingdom is actually going to reach. And the fact that he's even visiting this region signifies the universal concept of who the Messiah saves in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion. It doesn't matter. He's like, those things from the outside, they're not going to disqualify you from receiving what I have to offer to the world. And so that's contrast number one. 
But the weird thing is, he desires to be hidden from the crowds. It says he entered a house and he wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Back in chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, Jesus wants to get away from the crowd for a very specific reason, to teach his disciples. He, in chapter 9, verse 30 and 32, says, I'm trying to get away from everything that's going on because I want to teach you something. That very well, very well could have been happening right here where he had a desire to teach them more. And here's why. Because every time he preaches or does something or says a parable or, you know, puts a miracle forth, his disciples, like, aren't getting it. They're, like, not understanding. They have to constantly ask him questions. They're, like, sometimes they're, like, not cool with what the answers are. And they're worrying about, like, well, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? He's, like, are you serious? Like, I'm trying to heal people, and like that's the thing that you want to talk to me about. So he's constantly pushing them aside so that he's able to teach them. But what we're going to find out is that in this specific scenario, uh, this example is a better teacher than anything that he probably could have said. So verse 25 says that this woman shows up, and she, is, she has a young daughter who is demon-possessed. That's what unclean spirit means. And she heard about Jesus, which is cool. So there's apparently this fame about him that's spreading with the stuff that she does. And she's like, I know that for what I need, you're the person that I have to go to. Small application. It's super important that we're pointing people to him because that's where the needs get met. She knows. Even though she's a Greek and a Syrophoenician, which we'll talk about, like, should have disqualified her from even being like 20 feet from him. She knew if I can get to him, he can heal my problems, which was my daughter's demon-possessed. But here's contrast number two. In chapter five, Jairus came to him, who also had a daughter who was sick. And the, and the reason we pull these two things out is because the language is so similar. In Jairus' account in chapter five, verse 23, it says he fell at Jesus' feet. In our specific account, it says that uh, she came and fell at his feet. And then it says that Jairus begged Christ earnestly in verse 23 of chapter 5, and what she does in verse 26 is she keeps asking him. So the reason that these things are too, so similar is because Mark is trying to get a point across. Jairus' daughter was sick, and she was about to die, so he comes to Jesus in need, begging him to heal her. Jairus was not like this woman. He was a ruler of the synagogue, or you could call him an insider, because he had a job in the church. He was the, another... Translation puts it that he was like the president of the synagogue. Um, and so it seems that like, of course he should go to Jesus. He's the dude that has all the rights because he's a Jew. He's working in the church or in the synagogue, whatever you want to say. He's like got a lot of status. So yeah, of course you should go to Jesus. Jesus is your Messiah, right? And this woman should obviously stay far away from him because she's a Greek and she shouldn't go anywhere near him. But the woman in our passage does the same thing, falls at his feet. She keeps asking Jesus to heal her daughter. Her daughter is demon-possessed. Um, and the fact that she's a Syrophoenician by birth and a Greek means that she came from a horrible pagan region. She wasn't a Jew, so therefore, on the way that the Pharisees define things, she had no right to Jesus, no right to anything. Um, and so on that term, she should have been an outsider. Jairus should have been an insider, getting everything he needed. This woman should be an outsider, getting nothing that she needed. And if this woman had come to the scribes or the Pharisees, who in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 7 hold to the tradition of the elders, it's hard to imagine like, what they would have done for her if she would have walked up to them and been like, listen, I have this problem, like, I, you know, I, I need to speak to Jesus. They probably would have been like, yo, woman, back up. Another really small application. Don't make people feel 
like they can't actually come to Jesus with their needs because they're like not as cleaned up as you are. That's so key because the more we go through this life, it is my personal belief that you're going to find more and more people that are just like whatever the world wants to define as messed up. And I can say that I know who to take them to. But imagine if I was like, no, man, like you have all these things wrong with you and like you're, it, it, it's literally racism. If I was just like, no, man, you're, you're African-American, so like you can't come near Jesus. That's the way Jews felt about Gentiles. It's that severe and it's disgusting. Don't be that way. People that have needs, even if they're totally jacked up on the outside, you know who to take them to. But if she had gone to these Pharisees, by their standards, she's totally unclean. Bad news, ladies, being a woman was not good to the Pharisees. They would pray, thank God I'm not a woman or a dog or a Gentile. You were thrown in there. That's messed up. I know you're all sitting here looking at me like, you better not tell me that that's what Jesus thinks because he called her a little dog. What the heck is going on up there? We're going to get there. It's not what he means. She's a Greek. She's from a vile tribe of pagans. She'd have no claim to anything if it went through the religious leaders. And by their standards, Jairus is totally clean. He's a man, which was a plus. He's a Jew, which is a major plus. And he's the president of the synagogue. So like, holy cow, this dude must be able to like have Jesus on speed dial. And then this woman must have to go through leaps and bounds and hoops to, to be able to figure it out. These people were making distinctions off of outward appearances and outward um, qualifications. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing you that like whether you're the president of the synagogue or you're the woman who came out of like the worst neighborhood in the world who worships all kinds of idols, you both have access to me. There's going to be a caveat though to the way that the woman gets access. We'll see that. So if she's only left to the religious leader's standards, this woman, she's got no claim to Jesus' power, but Jairus does. And in all of Mark, for all the people that come up to Jesus, this lady has like the worst creds of anybody. Literally, the fact that she's Syrophoenician, Greek, woman, you might as well have just wrote down, don't come near Jesus. It was bad. Like the way that she was back then, that was not good. But check this out. Her heart, chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, is right. And it's seeking Jesus. That's what's most important. And chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, if foods are not unclean, neither are people. That's Jesus' point back then. He's like, if, you, if what comes inside of you expels out of you, and that doesn't cause you to be defiled in your heart, he's like, why would you treat people like that? He's like, it's not, that's not the way it is. Acts 10, 34 to 35, Peter learns a lesson. He says this. He's in Cornelius' house. Everybody gets baptized. They're all Gentiles. He's blown away. Here's what he says in Acts 10. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The only similarity that these two people have, Jairus and this Syrophoenician woman, is their need. That is the only thing that connects them. Literally the only thing. And not because both of them had a daughter that was in trouble. They just both had a need. And a need that they couldn't meet on their own. So they had to find somebody to meet that need for them. That was the only thing that made them um, similar. And so you get this super weird response. Because it's okay, fine. We just made this case that like it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. Jesus is like, come to me. I have, a, I have something to say to you, come to me. So you would think that she would show up and he'd be like, thank God someone showed up with the right heart. Yes, girl, I bless you with whatever you need. 
But he doesn't say that, does he? He responds to her plea with a parable. I'd be like, you got to be joking. So she shows up, falls at his feet. She has this horrible credential of who she is. She keeps asking him in verse 26. And then in verse 27, Jesus says this. Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. You'd be like, that is like, I tell, when I've taught this a couple times, and I've told people like, don't you just feel bad for her? You're like, this, this woman is like, my daughter has a demon. We're like, Jesus, like, I need you to help me. Like, I just want to know if he likes me or not. Or like, Jesus, like, I have a need. Like, I just want to get this job, which is cool. These things are not bad. This woman has a demon in her kid. And he's like, let's talk about parables. I'd be like, oh, no. Like, just tell me you're going to do it or not. Like, why are we going around the runaround? That would, it's not like he says this parable and then verse 27, 28, she goes, oh, no, you didn't. What if that's what it said? We'd all be like, I don't know what to teach you guys out of that. Don't do that. But we got to break it down a little bit because it doesn't, it's not as terrible as it seems. Some people try to make a lot of this and be like, he just like insulted her. But you got to get into the language. Here's my thing. I'm not like the greatest communicator. That's just like a fact. I love the Bible. That is also a fact. If I'm going to teach the Bible... I'm just going to keep dividing up different things that you find in the Bible. I don't have anything snappy to say. I'm not like, you know, I don't look cool. It's, my pants are cuffed for goodness sakes. It's like, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just a dude in his 20s trying to figure it out. So you can't just read something like that and be like, no, let me just try to find out like what I would say to them. You got to start getting into it. My co- commendation to you is throughout the rest of your life, don't just like take people's word for it. Get inside of it. Study the language. Study what the terms mean. Find what the Old Testament references are. That's where you get real application. You'll miss so much if you just like take it at face value and try to figure out what the heck it's supposed to be saying. Go deep. So we're going to do that a little bit because that's the only thing I know how to do. He refers to this woman as a dog in verse 27. He says, let the children eat first. It's not good to take children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He's referring to her. That is true. Dogs in the Old Testament, they illustrated the Israelite loathing of uncleanliness because here's what dogs did, stray dogs. They ate garbage, other dead animals, and dead human corpses. So you're like, I know that he did not just say that to somebody. The term illustrated people as worthless and dispensable. Dogs were the name that were often used to describe Gentiles, which meant they were ignorant, godless, pagan idolaters that were good for nothing. However, Jesus is not calling her unclean, or that would defeat the purpose of our contrast, wouldn't it? He just went through this whole big spiel about how it's not where you are on the outside, it's come from the inside, and the last thing he would do is then stand in front of everybody and call somebody unclean. So that's not the purpose of the word. The word is used, that is used for dog here is used as house pet, not street mongrel. Those are the two ways you can use dog in the Old Testament. It's house pet, not street mongrel. I mean, it doesn't make it any better. Like, we can just all admit that. I'm, like, I'm not trying to like, convince you that it's okay. It doesn't make it better. If I called you a house pet, you'd be like, go back to Philly now. The main purpose that he uses it is to create a separation of Jew and Gentile. So here's the funny thing. For all the hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus is not afraid to say, oh no, that distinction is real. I did come for the Jews. That's legit. And I came for them first. Let the children eat first. 
He's not afraid to make that distinction. Because Jews were often referred to as God's children in the Old Testament, and he calls them children. Don't let the little children's food go to the dogs. And so he's okay to make that distinction. He's not afraid to do that. And she replies using all the same terminology, but she changes the meaning for children. So when Jesus says, let the children eat first, he's talking about biological children. When she answers him and says that the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs, she's starting to include these are children and servants. And the idea is house pets and children and servants all live under the same roof, and they all get fed by the same hand, which is the ruler of the house, which is the father, which is Jesus in this scenario. So she gets that the mercies of God are going to extend beyond ethnic Israel, and she's not offended by the fact that he says that that's what he came to do. It's very interesting. It's all in the timing, right? So the issue between this woman and Jesus is not if the Gentiles or if she will receive God's blessing, but when she will receive God's blessing in relation to how he wants to restore Israel. That's why he said in verse 27, let the children eat first. Not let the children eat and everybody else go hungry for the rest of their lives. Let the children eat first. It establishes a priority of Jesus' mission, and it doesn't exclude hungry mouths. It just says there's an order to the way this is happening. Her reply in verse 28 is the thing that blows my mind the most. She comes back and she says, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And here's what this does for us. It shows that she understands that the mission of the Messiah, she understands his mission better than his own people. Better than the insiders or the disciples or the Pharisees or the people that have been studying the law, she knows more than they do. And that's exemplified in the fact that she owns the role that he gives her. The fact that she approaches him at all, accompanied by her persistence, which is why she's keep, she keeps asking, is a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and the surplus or the supply that Jesus has. She's not afraid to walk up and hear, it's not coming to you yet. She knows that it will get to her. She's not afraid of that. She's like, okay, define it however you want. But like, I know that you have so much and that you're going to do so much that I'm going to get affected by it. She has that much faith. She is stating that she believes as Jesus has revealed himself to Israel, that is all that she needs to receive his blessing. She doesn't need him to do something different. She doesn't need him to do something special. She doesn't need a specific word for her. She's like, how you got revealed to your people first is good enough for me because I know something's coming to me in that revelation. You don't have to do something different. Just keep moving on the track that you've been moving. So the provision that he has for his disciples in Israel will be abundant enough to overflow and provide for a Gentile like herself. And here's a, here's a cool little um, sandwich in a sense. Chapter 6, verse 31 through 44, Jesus feeds the 5,000 Jewish people. Our specific scenario, or all of chapter 7, defining clean, unclean, he then extends blessing to a Gentile for the first time. And then in chapter 8 right after, he feeds 4,000 Gentile people. First time he did it. There's a progression to what he's doing. And she's not offended by that progression. And she knows that there is a progression. And she says, the way that you've been revealed 
oh, that is good enough for me. That is good enough for me. One author describes her response this way, and I thought it put it perfectly. When dogs eat crumbs from the table, they do not rob um, children of their food. They simply eat what is theirs from the surplus of the children. She understands that God blessing Israel and restoring them has so much power behind it that it will have no other option but to overflow to other people. She's not like, well, Gentiles should replace Israel. She's not like, well, I think it should be this way or it should be that way, and I'm really mad that you told me that it's not for me right now. She goes, that's cool it's not for me right now, but you can't contain all that you're trying to do in the world, mainly the salvation of anybody's sins who come to him. And that's okay with her. And we're going to get to why that's so important. And I would add, the reason that she doesn't remove of the surplus of the children's food or the blessings of Israel is because the father feeding the children, or Jesus who's blessing Israel, you can't have his supply run out. And it is not, as we already laid the case out, only for specific races or people with certain jobs. It's for everyone. So Jesus desires to teach his disciples, and they can't get it. Over and over and over again, they're just like, can you please like, explain that one more time? He tells them parables all the time. And most times, they're like, oh, geez, we didn't get anything you just said. Can you like redefine that? And he says a lot, like, are you yet of understanding? Like, are you serious? Like, you've been walking around with me this long, and you still don't know when I say a parable what I'm talking about? She doesn't need an explanation. She's got her ear to the ground, and she's like, oh, I know what you mean. And I'm totally cool with it. So here's what I'll say to that. And he says, oh, you get, your, you get what you want. You get what you, what you need because you came to me on my terms. So the funny thing is she keeps asking him in verse 26, right? So Jesus is reluctant to even really engage with this woman. He's reluctant to even have this conversation. And then in one sentence, one sentence, she receives a full commendation from him. He's like, go your way. Your daughter's healed. One, it took one sentence. All she said was, yep, but dogs get to eat too. And he's like, mm, amen. That's it. Disciples are trying to divide things up. Pharisees are trying to add laws. They're like, we're going to figure this thing out. All you had to do was accept what he said about you. And he says, that's, how you, that's it. That's it. She is the first person in all of Mark. We're at chapter 7. She is the first person to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. Nobody else has a clue. Read it. It's true. They're all like, either the Pharisees are mad, or the disciples are confused, or like people are like tweaked that he's going to like take away their rule and reign. Nobody has actually had a clue about what he's doing. I'm here to preach the kingdom of God, and they all freak out. All the Jews are like, yeah, you're here to overthrow Rome and get rid of all the Gentiles. Life's going to be awesome. He's like, no. I'm here to forgive people and to say that everybody has a shot at entrance into the kingdom of God through repentance. And they're all like, what does that mean? He's like, it means what I said it means. You're sinful, so you need to repent. This woman, he calls it like it is, and she goes, you're right. But I also know that there is blessing for me. And he says, yes, go your way. Your daughter has been healed. In understanding this parable, she has been shown the mystery of the kingdom of God, which is salvation for every race, 
Every gender, every religion that you come out of, every situation that you walked into, every way that you grew up, she just got the mystery of the world, which was like somehow God had so much love that he would go past Israel, include them first, but then overflow and keep going and keep going and keep going. Read the book of Acts. It's awesome. All these people are doing is walking around, spreading the gospel, planting churches. That's why I said in the beginning, this is so unique. What you have is so unique. What you have in that main church building is so unique because somebody was faithful enough to spread the gospel in Jersey. And here you are, doing things, learning more stuff. And all that started because Jesus showed up and he said, everybody's in. If you repent, you're in. She is not distant in this. She's not attempting to maintain her position or her control of her identity. She gives it all up. She's like, that's how you want to call it? That's how I'll take it. She has wrestled with Jesus in a sense and overcome. It's like Jacob in Genesis 32. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Martin Luther said this about this woman's response. She asked for no more than her due. That's a pretty crazy statement. She walks up to Jesus, and she says, Because of who you are, there is something due to me. That is receiving your blessing and your power and being able to experience what it's like in your kingdom here on earth. She claimed that. She didn't walk up and claim it and say, we're going to do this my way, Jesus. She's hurt. I know that you're gracious, so just do it. She walked up and he gave her a parable and she worked that parable and she said, that is exactly who I am. But I know what that means. And he says, yeah. That's exactly what it means. So here's the thing. This woman was not offered a separate revelation of who God is because she wasn't Jewish. And neither are we. People get that wrong a lot. They think that now that we've come in this brand new wonderful age of technology, which is cool. I'm not again, I'm, I work in the media department. <laughs> they think that they have to get some brand new thing. Oh, well, Jesus is all of a sudden cool with blank, even though he's not, because it's in the Bible. Oh, all of a sudden, Jesus, like, he's kind of like this, because, like, that's sort of how I feel. And I've, like, learned all these new things, and, I mean, this book is so old, old like logic. You can't trust it. Shameless plug, hashtag. (laughs) No. She doesn't get something new just because she wasn't Israel. And just because we are not that back then, it doesn't mean that you get a brand new idea of who Jesus is. The Jesus that we worship is one and the same with the Son of God who's been revealed to us in the Bible. It is just the same Jesus. He's doing new things. That is true. Because we're obviously not living in this specific time period. We are different people from this time period. But make no mistake about it. This is who we're talking about when we tell people that we love Jesus. And that we want them to have faith in Jesus. This is the guy we're talking about. We don't get some brand new thought or idea just because it's 2016. This woman fully accepts the authenticity and the uniqueness of God as he has chosen to reveal himself. So important. She says, okay, you've chosen that you're going to come and you're going to be to Israel first. But I know that it's going to go greater than that. So we're just going to call it like it is, just like you called me like I was. But I know that I get blessing out of that. She's willing to accept that, like, you don't have to be somebody else 
Jesus just for me to experience your goodness. Your authenticity and your uniqueness as it was revealed to Israel back in the day, she's like, that's good enough for me. The way he is right here has to be good enough for you because he's not going to change just because you don't like it or just because you're confused. He's actually just going to answer those questions for you. But we're going to see how that happens. So she doesn't ask for or demand that he be any different than he was. She's not like, don't talk to me that way. I am a woman and I got rights. Which you do. That's not, a, that's not a slam. Love girls. Love my wife mostly. It's a weird statement. You... <laughs> I told myself I wasn't going to do that. She, she doesn't ask him to be anything than he is. She doesn't ask him to change. She doesn't ask him to please have better rhetoric. She's not like, can you use a different word and then we can talk? However he is and however he reveals himself, she's like, I'm not coming to you so that I can define you. I'm coming to you so that you can define me. That's where the power comes from. This woman fully trusts that as he has been revealed, this Jesus can also meet her need. You have to look at it that way. The way that he's revealed to you in scripture and the way that he's been revealed since the ages before, that is good enough to meet the needs that you have today in 2016. Whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, you don't need to try to make Jesus fit into your problems. He already gets it. And the way that he's been revealed to the world is exactly what you need to persevere. And if you get one thing tonight, let this be the thing. Jesus commands all who desire to receive his kingdom, which is what he's been preaching about in the Gospels, all who desire to receive his kingdom and experience the power of his word to enter the parable and be claimed by it. He requires that. It is his command that when he speaks and you read what it says, you get into it. You don't show up to it and get mad at it and tell him that it's not the way it's supposed to be. You don't show up to it and say, I don't like that you use that word, or I don't like that this is the way things go. The way that you access his kingdom and his power is you get inside of his parable and you let yourself get claimed by it. It doesn't take social, religious, economic, educational, or any other status that you might think is necessary to access this God and his word. The invitation is to everybody. The only thing you have to have is an ability to admit your need. And once you admit your need and you see what God says about it, own that. Get claimed by his words. Because when we get into God's narrative, we find that salvation has been offered to the world through Jesus who fulfills God's revelation of who he is to Israel. The whole thing is connected. When you get inside his narrative in the Bible, you realize, oh, I have a place. Maybe it's not the place that you think that you want or the place that you think you should have, but there's a place for you. And you don't get to rearrange that place or tell him that you want a better place or whatever that might be. But what you do is you get inside of it and you say, define me. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me how I'm supposed to be. I'll receive anything. And the cool thing is, she enters into this parable. She says, yeah, but I mean, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the children. And then he treats her like a child. He gives her what she's looking for. So you don't stay in this position of like, I'll always be lowly. 
When you own what he's saying about you, there are resources there to help you get through this very difficult life. But you have to be defined by what he's saying first. This woman is literally the definition of faith. Faith is not like believing that you're going to get something. Faith is hearing what God says and saying, whatever I think, that is true about me. And I'm going to trust that it's true about me. And I'm going to tell you, it is the most life-giving thing when you just let the Bible define you. Let Jesus define you. Imagine, you get defined by so much stuff, don't you? If you want to listen to a certain music genre, you better dress a certain way because that's how that person dresses. If you want to be someone who's into sports, well, then you have to get all the, like, super awesome jogger outfits with the dope Nikes because, like, that's what you have to do if you're a sports person. Like, we let a billion things define who we are. You want to be with that girl? You're going to find out what she likes. You're going to be like, I'm going to wear that. I'm going to cut my hair like that. Funny story. It's not always bad to do that because I did that in order for my wife to actually think that I was attractive back in the day. Might be hard to imagine, but imagine this. Super long, swoopy hair. Jeans like 20 times tighter than what I'm wearing right now. Vans Authentics, which are cool. No problem there. I love them. A deep V-neck. It went past areas it's not supposed to go past. I start taking an interest in my now wife back then, just a girl that I knew or a friend of mine. And thank God she was like, no. <laughs> When we actually, like, she was like, you know, I think you'd look good with, like, shorter hair. She, would just, she was super gracious. She would throw a little stuff like that in there. You know what I did the next time I saw her? I shaved it to a one. It was down here, and I took that whole thing off. She's like, you know, I think that you would look really nice in crew neck t-shirts. Oh, boy. I worked at a retail store. I cleaned them suckers out, and I, like, burned all my v-necks. I didn't wear another one after that day. Why? Because I really liked her, and I wanted her to like me. And I was like, if this is ever going to work, I better start looking half decent, you know. Still working on it. We do that stuff all the time. And sometimes it's not bad. That was a good thing. She is a solid person. And if I never did that, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today. I'd probably have a bunch of weird ideas in theology because it's not just how I dressed. It was deeper than that inside of my heart. And she called all those things out on me. So sometimes it's good. The time that it's best is when you read the Bible and Jesus says, this is who you are. And you say, all right. Yeah. You, you call it. That's who I am. And because that's who I am, I'm going to start going all over your word and figuring out, okay, so then where does my role fit into your kingdom? Because you have a role. And the thing that we learn most about this is that it wasn't just for one specific people group. He blew the thing wide open with this woman. And he was just like, even a Gentile outsider who hasn't heard my teachings, who everybody thinks is the worst, she can understand how to enter into the kingdom of God. I don't care who you are, where you came from, how you look, what you're going through. It took a pagan female one sentence to access all that Jesus has to offer. It's open for everybody. 
It's the only place you're going to find somebody who's righteous enough and holy enough and gracious enough and loving enough to actually show you who you are in this world. Because I'm telling you right now, all y'all young people are confused. Because I'm confused and I'm 26. And if you haven't figured out more than me, please talk to me afterwards because we've got to have a conversation because you're the man or the woman. We're all trying to figure it out. And that's okay. Jesus never says... Well, since you feel different than the way that I've defined you, I guess you can't be defined by me. Or, I guess you're going to have to wait till those feelings go away. No. He says, welcome to taking up your cross and walking with it. Deny how you feel. And let what I'm saying be the thing that defines you. I'm sure it didn't feel good to be called like a house pet under Israel who was persecuting you anyway. That's the crazy part. Jesus wasn't like, yeah, Israel, you guys are horrible. These, these are people. Don't talk to them that way. He makes the distinction, and she owns the distinction. And I guarantee you, it probably didn't feel that good. But that didn't really matter to her. She was like, all the other things that define me are not casting the demon out of my daughter. All the other stuff that is defining you is not helping you in your growth as a human being. Jesus has those resources. And what he says is, let me call it like it is. And if you can enter into that and be claimed by my words, there's access to me. And I can help you through this life because it's hard. But being defined by God's word is like, if you can figure that out, you'll be all right. You'll be okay. And the best part is, it goes way past just one specific people group. That's why looking out here, it is incredible how diverse this room is. There's not even like a bunch of people here and it's so diverse. Why? Because it's open to all of you. And if you're here and you're new or someone invited you and you're not saved, the only thing that we can commend you as Christians is like, we're all trying to figure it out and we're all trying to deny the way that we feel and we're all struggling through things that we know are probably not the best. But we found someone who says, just walk by my commands and you're going to honor me, which is the most important part. You're going to please me. You're going to bless me.